The coronavirus is leading Australia's $4 billion live performance industry to the brink of collapse. For the next six months, all live music festivals shut down. All tours cancelled. The virus has robbed artists, agents and publicists and managers of their livelihood. For the promoters and media, they're not only having all forecasted income vanish, they're left holding the bag with millions of dollars in bills to pay and no income to possibly pay them with. One artist manager revealed to me in the space of three days he lost over $1.5 million in revenue for the handful of artists he represents. That would have represented $300,000 in commissions which he needed to pay his four full-time staff. He asked me in a somber, almost rhetoric tone, what do you think I should do? On an economic front, the Australian government is printing hundreds of billions of dollars in order to make sure stock investors don't lose their investments and the housing market does not collapse. The cost of this is seeing the Australian dollar fall, and a weak Australian dollar will hurt our music industry for decades after the virus passes. A weak Australian dollar makes it harder for artists to export themselves. It will be obscenely expensive to tour internationally and fund a marketing campaign in another market. It will also make it near impossible for promoters to book international artists, meaning less festivals for punters, and more damagingly, less festivals for Australian artists to play at and earn a living. Observing all this for the Industry Observer, I'm Luke Gerges, and I sit here with the most respected artist manager in the country, John Watson, to unpack the most unprecedented times in the Australian music industry. This is fear at the top, and we've never experienced fear like this before. John, welcome. That's quite an intro. Thanks, Luke. How are you feeling? Look, I feel okay. Um, I feel concerned for my friends. Um, you know, I think the impact is everything that you've, domestic impact is everything that you've just said there, um, but I think it's probably even broader. I think, you know, the impact on crew, um, the impact on people selling T-shirts, on people putting up posters, on the people that you know, do the layouts for the ads that aren't getting run, um, the digital campaigns and everything else. I think the, the, the ripples of this are running right through the economy, out of our industry, which has been particularly bad hit, and in many other industries as well, and coming on the back of all the challenges of the bushfires over summer, uh, you know, it's a very, very challenging time. Um, I suppose that, you know, the purpose of something like this should be to try to find some positives in amongst all that. You've got to look pretty hard to find them, um, but they're always there. Um, so hopefully we can do a little bit of that today as, as well as, uh, you know, exploring the negatives. And how are your artists feeling? Look, we've probably been um, incredibly fortunate. Um, most of our touring was happening over the summer just gone or at the end of this year. Um, we've had the presets out on the Drop uh, Festival, which is now obviously imperiled, um, and Birds of Tokyo doing symphony orchestra shows, which is a really big deal for them. They've always wanted to do that. Um, it was, you know, their whole album launch was built around those shows, so losing those is, is fundamental. Um, the Oils were going to be very active in the middle of the year with Splendour and other releases. We've had to move all of that back to some indeterminate date. So we've, we've been hit and our artists have in different ways been um, impacted on that creatively in the case of Birds, financially in the case of, of the presets. Um, you know, sort of at every level for the Oils, they're getting ready to release their first new music in 20 years and that's on pause. So everybody's affected in different ways. But um, I think in the big scheme of things, uh, given how sort of skewed towards summer our touring just happened to be this year, um, we've got out of it fairly lightly. Have, can you talk us through um, the last time something catastrophic has happened in the music industry and how 
and how people reacted and how we got out of it. Because, you know, if you look at every financial crisis that has happened in history, there's always certain industries and certain people that come out of it really rich um, and they capitalize on a certain opportunity. So learning from the past and maybe whether there is or there isn't stuff to learn from the past, where do you see the opportunity is in all of this? It's a great question. Um, I don't think the music industry per se has ever confronted something, on, you know, the, certainly the live side of the industry has ever confronted anything on this scale in this country. You know, there's been natural disasters which have knocked things for six. There might have been, you know, a, the, the terrorist attacks in Paris or the terrible things that have happened, but this, the, the global and total nature of this is quite unique. Um, so I think anybody that sort of says, oh, the answer is you know, certain is, is a liar or a fool. Um, I think that when you stand back from history, though, and you sort of try and get a 100-year view on things, um, the brands that sustain through times of challenge are those that stand for something strong. They're those that have strong connections with audience. They're those that um, seek to actually give back as well as to take. Um, and, you know, hard times can also be defining times for people. Um, you know, I'm on the Board of Support Act and, and we had a conference call the other day and, you know, while it's daunting for the organisation, you know, it, it feels like you're trying to deal with a bushfire with two buckets of water given that the, the modest resources that, that we have. Um, on the other hand, it could be a really defining time for the organisation to really step up and, um, you know, command the sort of top of mind that Music Hairs does in America, for example. Um, to do that, it requires more funding in the first instance, so hopefully, you know, government and and, uh, and some, some private donors are able to do that. So I think what, what will be the things that the positives that can come out of it? Um, a greater role for Support Act so that it's more central and we have crisis relief in future. Secondly, um, perhaps people recognising, self-included, that um, the good times don't always roll and you need to sort of plan a little more for um, you know, all that stuff your mum and dad told you about putting some aside for a rainy day and all of that kind of very boring um, stuff that came from people who survived world wars and depressions. You look at it and go, there's probably a reason why that was being said. You know, so I think a lot of people will live their lives quite differently as a result of that. Um, I think that, you know, it's a hard way to learn the lesson, but I think that what, what happens when you come through times like this where you experience material need is that you start to appreciate the importance of non-material things. You know, it will be the relationships with friends and family and the, you know, the time that you spent hunkered down over a game of cards or something that you end up, you know, having as the memory of this. Um, and I think, you know, it will breed resilience as well. Um, what will inevitably happen in a situation like this is that it will shake loose a lot of the people that weren't in it for the right reasons to begin with. You know, anybody who was here for a quick cash-in will be gone when this comes back. So I think there'll be a certain amount of weeding which will leave, um, you know, to risk of torturing the metaphor, the garden in a better um, state when we come out the other side of it. So those are the positives. You've got to stand a long way back to see them. I'm not pretending that it's... Um, that it's, it's an easy situation. It's not. It's a very, very hard situation, particularly for um, those who are independent contractors who, you know, or, or managers who happen to have had, you know, um, touring proceeding over the next four or five months, wall-to-wall -to -wall touring, they've had to cancel all of it. Um, you know, it's, it's cataclysmic for them and for their, for their clients. Mm. When you look at um, something like the fashion industry, when the, the market is really, really strong, you see all of these like fragmented little independent stores pop up all over the city and they're all killing it and they're all doing really well. 
and then through massive turbulent times, those little independent shops die and they can't survive. And then the bigger stores like Urban Outfitters or whatever sort of come through it and are, are able to just enjoy the extra market share without having to do anything, right? They've just, they just had to weather the storm and they now no longer have all these fragmented in stores to compete with. That, that, that's probably true, although there would also be some major brands that are going to the wall in that period as well. You know, if you think mm -hmm. about in a recession, um, and one of, the, one of the interesting things about this is that generationally, you know, probably anybody under the age of, you know, their mid-40s hasn't really experienced a recession in their conscious lifetimes. Mm. So, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older than that. Mm. Um, but, you know, when, when you recall what a recession is like, you know, good businesses, or seemingly good businesses, businesses that are household names, um, do disappear. And mm. so you'll find some bigger ones go as well. And then when, you're right, when it comes back, it's difficult because um, small businesses typically don't have the capital Mm. to be able to sustain themselves through the, the lean period and then to grab the opportunity for expansion that arrives when things swing back up again. Mm. Um, so, you know, that is a challenge. But, uh, again, within a few years of the, of, that, of, of the end of a recession period, you will find all of those small or many of those small outlets have popped up, back up again. You know, human ingenuity is not to be uh, underestimated. Human resilience is not to be underestimated. Um, you know, it, it is a very challenging time. I think everybody feels um, a yearning for, for a type of leadership that's in pretty scarce supply right around the world right now. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, that probably amplifies the anxiety that people are feeling. Um, I think it's also the uncertainty. I think that, you know, as, as humans, we like to create the illusion of certainty for ourselves. You know, we like to sort of think that we're in control of the universe in a way that we never actually are. And an occurrence like this causes you to recognise what a tenuous grip you actually have on the planet. Um, you know, maybe one of the other positives with that in mind coming out the other side of it is a recognition that this same tenuous grip on the planet that, that's being revealed by this particular episode, which is urgent and immediate, applies also in, on other issues like climate change. It's just happening in slow motion, you know. Um, so we'll worry about that when we get to it, I suppose, in a way, you know, it's not something to be dealt with this month for people, mm. but, um, you know, the potential for changes in thinking for people at the other side of this, you ask me to try and find positives, mm. that would be a positive as well. It's a fair way down the track. I'm not pretending that it makes everything okay right now, mm. but it does exist. Mm. You know, I'd also, and on a more specific industry basis in your, in your um, intro there, you talked about the, the change in uh, the foreign exchange rates you know, and the, the collapsing Australia dollar and the impact of that. Um, that one I could definitely argue is a double-edged sword. Um, mm -hmm. And sort of without having to try to really, you know, view the glass as an eighth full. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that right now, more than ever, artists who are about to head overseas are doing so because they're starting to get some streaming traction. Mm -hmm. So all of their international recording earnings will be much, much better than they would have been as a, you know... Um, a, a fund to help in that process. Um, and in US dollars? In US dollars. So, you know, mm. if they're receiving their overseas earnings in US dollars, then mm. their streaming revenues are going up at the same time as their touring expenses are going up, right? Mm. So if they're... And normally the people who are going overseas to tour are, try, are doing so because they're showing some streaming traction in some mm. way, right? Or, or getting the odd sync, which is all in US dollars as well. So at least 
the revenues are going up alongside the expenses in that instance. Now, of course, you're losing money overall, so overall you're going backwards, but the upside is greater. Mm. Um, you know, I have some very fond memories of certain touring we did when the dollar was at 55 cents. It was great once you get to that point. <laughs> Similarly, you made the point about, you know, festivals will lack overseas headlines, and that's kind of true. But, you know, as a manager of Australian artists, I think that's a good news story because there'll be, you know, more of a role for Australian artists perhaps near the pointy end of some of these bills. And there's certainly artists and managers, and you guys have written about it over the journey, who feel that, you know, Australian artists probably don't get their just desserts sometimes on, on festival bills. And this could be an opportunity for Australian artists to, you know, uh, step up in those spaces because of the gaps that get opened up by the, the weaker dollar. So I think there's positives in that as well. Um, I want to unpack both of those things, both on the recording side as well as the last thing you touched on. Um, with that last thing, do you not think that the Australian artists are not getting more visibility at the pointy end of those festivals because they can't sell the tickets and therefore rather than replacing internationals with Australian artists, we might just not get the festivals because they won't be viable? Look, that may well be the case in terms of the festival viability. We'll see. The... Um I think that there's a, there's a lot, the issues confronting festivals are huge. Um, you know, the, the climate-related issues of last summer were already making next summer almost impossible to contemplate for some, some mm. events. You know, having somehow got through, you know, all the biblical challenges that we confront <laughs> on the Cold Chisel Tour, um, you know, I, I'm sort of vowed not to go outdoors again mm. over summer because it was so stressful. Um, so I don't envy the festival promoters that I, you know, my comment wasn't sort of specific to any event. It was really kind of a 25 year observation, mm. which is that I would love a dollar for every festival I've gone to where there is an Australian artist playing at five o'clock that has people spilling out of the tents and an international artist playing at eight o'clock that has a half full tent. Mm. Um, and, you know, I would love a dollar for, for the number of times I've seen posters. Australian dollar or US dollar? <laughs> <laughs> New Zealand dollars are yeah. worse. Um, <laughs> The, the uh, I, I also think that, you know, that I've seen plenty of posters where Australian artists are playing before international artists in Australia that they would play after on international events. Mm. And uh, I'm not saying that happens all the time. Mm. It happens sometimes. There are a lot of reasons behind it. Australian artists tend to play more here as well. So mm. it's not just about what your audience is. It's about how many shows it's divided across. So I get that there's... Saturation, yeah. Yeah, saturation. I get, I get that there's issues both ways. My point mm. was that... You know, there might be the odd occasion where we see an Australian artist say, you know what, I am going to stay home and I'm going to do that festival run as my big tour this year and, and that's good news for the festival as well because they've got themselves a headliner. Mm. Um, so, you know, and I'm not saying that's every instance. My point was simply that there are um, upsides to the move in the dollar which are a little more tangible, you have to reach as hard to find them as you do in some of the other things that are going on right now, particularly, you know, the broader economic impacts of, of this, you know, both the lost income of the next two, three, four, six, whatever it turns out to be, months. But then beyond that, the, the, the lack of money that will be in the economy from all the people that just simply haven't been getting paychecks and don't have the same amount of money to spend on tickets and T-shirts. Mm. In a world where touring is zero, um, the Australian dollar is weak, is it better, and you've got good international streaming, is it better to um, be independent or be on a label or how would, you know, which art, which type of artist is better off in this scenario? Mm, good good question. Um, I think it depends on the type of music you're making. I think there are certain sorts of, so for, so for example, if you're in the pure pop business, um, 
you know, someone that still has a big chunk of their career invested in trying to, you know, uh, have their music synced in Hollywood movies and get played on mainstream radio stations and um, have brand endorsements and all that sort of stuff, then they're still probably a pretty key role for, for labels in your life and they're probably also helping underwrite your costs and, and mitigate your risk as far as that's concerned. If you're making more niche music, if you're a metal band or you're you know, making um, hardcore dance stuff or something like that, then it's pretty hard to see how a label will grow your career cake by more than the size of the slice they take away. Mm. So I think it's about being flexible as to what's the right fit for, for the kind of music you're making and to help um, and, and to identify who are the right partners to help me achieve my version of success. Mm. Where do you think the opportunity is to capitalise for an independent artist right now? Well, the first thing that I ask, when in doubt, write songs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the bad news is that everybody's stuck indoors. You know, if you look at some of the great music cities around the world and some of the great scenes around the world, they came out of places where everybody was stuck indoors. You know, mm-hmm. you can make a case that part of the reason why Melbourne's always had more strength in Sydney is because, you know, they have more rainy days each year. Um, the artists are forced inside, they're writing more songs, they're making more music. Um, and Sydney artists went to the beach. Um, being a bit glib, but, you know, I think there's... There's long walks in between recording session days in Sydney. Oh, let's go out for a walk for a coffee. And they <laughs> might go for a couple of hours. That's exactly right. Yeah. Don't go to, you know, go to duck down and, you know, get a, get a, uh, get a, get a visit a tanning cell. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, I, so I think that, when in doubt, make music. When in doubt, connect with your fans. You know, I think it's fascinating watching the way in which artists have instantly gravitated towards talking to the, the good ones, mm. have instantly gravitated towards talking to their fans, just because you know, that relationship is that of a friend. Mm. So how do I connect with these people? These people want to hear from me. I want to hear from them. You know, we're going to lift each other up together. Now, that's been more successful for some than others. Um, so, you know, some have achieved, some have pulled it off, others have perhaps overshot. Mm. Um, but the, in, the impulse is a good one, I think. You know, make music, connect with your audience, continue to keep that alive. Mm. Um, if you're in a position to help other people, help other people. Um, you know, artists who weren't going to be on the road anyway, um, you know, we've, we've got artists who are, you know, paying crew for shows that they never end up doing or advancing crew against shows that are a fair way down the road um, to try and sort of help them get through. Mm. Um, you know, everybody, I think, is, is trying to help where they can help in the various initiatives, um, you know, keeping track of how many gigs have been cancelled so there's a number to put on that, uh, raising money for Support Act, uh, providing extra support, you know, the, the whole idea of keep your ticket Mm. Um, there's not, uh, it's amazing watching how many initiatives um, have come up within the last three days which are actually not so much about people just going I want to fix my own bank balance it's like my, my own bank balance would be okay I want to help other people's bank balance that impulse is really great it shouldn't just be taken for granted like that's not a given you know I, I guarantee that's not happening anywhere near as much down in you know Macquarie Street or Mm. on Wall Street Mm. Um, so there is something to be said about the community nature of of music that that in these times of needs that people do try to do that even though their resources might be limited Um, I think that stands you in good stead as well Mm. Um, 
I suspect also that, you know, there's an opportunity, and I am, be honest about it, I am sort of reaching the deep down the bottom of the barrel here to find positives. But, you know, certainly from our end, you know, we're seizing upon this as a moment to do all those jobs that weren't urgent but which were important, you know, checking all our registrations, sorting out all our archiving, um, you know, uh, working out a whole bunch of different financial reporting stuff so we've got better ability to figure out what we're doing, um, what's actually happening in our business, mm -hmm. things that tend to get driven out otherwise. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, if I could swap that for getting rid of the virus, I'd do it in a heartbeat. But, you know, we're not sort of, sort of sitting curled up in the fetal position rocking. We're mm -hmm. trying to use the time efficiently and effectively so that even when there are green shoots, we're, you know, ready for them. Mm. When artists are writing music and inevitably releasing music onto streaming services, pitching to radio, there's this big call at the moment where, um, hey, radio, and I think they're pointing their gun at commercial radio, can you just start playing more Australian music now to help us through these hard times? You know, we'll get royalties every time you play the song and it won't cost you any more money. Um, you know, commercial radio is going through a super hard time as well. I mean, all agency brand dollars are dried up, so their their PL is going through the floor. Um, is it realistic for Australian music industry to demand of commercial radio to change their business model in the middle of a crisis um, and ask them to potentially lose market share unless they're all going to do it? Well, that, it, the, the key part is all going to do it. That was the, mm. the, the most important words of your entire right there. <laughs> I don't know that anyone's demanding it. I think everybody's requesting it. Yeah. I think there's a certain amount of desperation that comes from it. Mm. Um, and I think that underpinning it is a sense within the industry that for many years radio has not met its quota requirements and that its quota requirements have been... Um, Bullshit. Know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they have been. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the fact that radio stations can self-determine you know, for people who aren't aware of how the system works, mm. you know, radio stations have a quota that's based on the type of format they are. So pop stations have to play, I think it's 25% Australian music and 25% of that 25% has to be new. Adult contemporary stations have a lower rate of both those things. As you move your way down to classic hit stations, there are a very small percentage of Australian music and, and basically no percentage of new Australian music. But the, you know, and there are many devils within that detail. One of the devils is that radio stations get to self-determine what type of station there are. So as a consequence, apparently there are no pop radio stations in Sydney. Um, so, you know, I, I think that radio's um, ability to say, hey, fair cop, you know, on this, um, treat us fairly, would be received more warmly by the music industry if they felt it had been reciprocated. Mm. Um, you know, having said that, of course radio has... Um, a commercial imperative, and of course, any traditional media outlet right now is under existential threat from a whole heap of organisations that are, you know, lucky enough to not have to play by the same rules. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to pay for licences in the first place. They don't have to abide by all sorts of different regulations that you know traditional media has to abide by. Um, so, for all of those reasons, if I was running a radio network, I would feel like, you know, not my gig man. Mm -hmm. um, I think the key, the responsibility there, actually falls at the feet of government. I think government has to establish a level playing field for all of these organisations so that, you know, if they're all doing it, then what's the downside to anybody? There is no competitive disadvantage. Mm. I would also side with traditional media in saying that there needs to be some level playing field between traditional media and new media 
um, Facebook and Google in particular, mm. uh, as they siphon off advertising dollars and the money that used to go to supporting quality journalism is now going to supporting, I don't know, Russian trolls. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I, I think there are much bigger issues at play here. I think the impulse of the music industry, of, the, you know, of our side of the business, to ask radio to help is natural. I think that, you know, we don't feel ashamed in doing so because we feel like they've had a pretty good run. Um, and But equally, we do understand that they've got some legitimate um, and serious issues to confront. So my question um, I'm going to pose now, I don't actually have an answer for. But the the idea of getting what you want, you have to give somebody what they want in order to get what you want. And we all want commercial radio to play a lot more Australian music. And what they want is more market share and less people changing stations. So how as an industry can we give that to them if we're all listening to a government radio station who is giving us what we want, you know, already? So Triple J already giving us a whole bunch of Australian music. Why would we change channel? And then therefore, if that's the case, why would they start playing our music? Um, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with the premise. Um, I think that the threat to radio is not just competition with other radio stations. The threat to radio is competition with streaming. You know, it's competition with video games. It's competition with Netflix. Mm. It's competition for entertainment. You know, they're in the entertainment business and they're competing with other forms of entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, so their first challenge is to defend their kind of... Um, their audience share overall as an industry. Then once they've figured out what that is, then they can fight over how to slice it up. Um, and I think that, you know, when it comes to the role of Australian music and Australian culture, um, there is a certain element of the public want what the public gets, and a certain element of the public gets what the public wants. Um, and I, I personally believe that the appetite for Australian music is always um, greater than what commercial radio think it is. And I think that that's exacerbated in a world where they take their lead from streaming because so many tracks on streaming, uh, international tracks, get a leg up from the algorithm early because of being present on the very popular international playlists mm. that Australian artists, you know, by definition, don't get access to. And you'll see it time and time again that Australian artists are taking much longer to get that um, exponential growth pattern to get the coronavirus growth pattern <laughs> happening on um, on Spotify, uh, to the point where, because commercial radio is watching some of those numbers, a lot of times you get this sort of um, slight out of stepness going on between what's going on with the audience and then what's going on with radio. They're sort of coming on to it almost too late to make mm. a difference um, in, on the rare occasions where they are, you know, mm. coming in behind those tracks. So, um, and I think you know we also probably need to differentiate between the different formats there as well. Now, Triple M, for example, can hold their head pretty high. If you look at their top 10 at any given time, even though their rotations are quite low, they regularly have a 30, 40, 50% share of, of Australian music. Mm. Um, sure, there's a lot of classic in there as well, but they do play, you know, new Australian releases. Um, of course, they're an older skewed radio station. Rock is increasingly a niche genre. Um, you know, that's not the answer to everything, but you wouldn't want to tar everybody with the same brush. Mm. You know, and as far as, as the um, Murdoch-driven desire to put the ABC to the sword and have all that extra audience to themselves, um, you know, I say no. Yeah, <laughs> agreed. I always just wonder about, you know, the idea of um, your, your circle of influence 
um, and how and what is actually in our circle of influence. You know, yes, we can lobby government, and we should, but at the end of the day, it's their decision. <laughs> you know, um, yes, we can ask commercial radio to play more radio, but at the end of the day, it's their decision. Unless we work out the thing that they need in order to give us what we want. And I don't know how to move that, but that's kind of the way I always think. And like, what our audience? It's yeah. the same as everything. The power of this business is in the audience. That's why you said, what do you do when you're locked at home? Stay in touch with your audience. Connect mm. with your audience. Use this as an opportunity to get deeper with your audience. Because that's ultimately, what does the politician want? The politician wants vote. votes. Who's voting? Your audience is voting. Mm. You know, the, 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 one of the reasons why in New South Wales the, the lockout laws ended up getting wound back was not really that somebody came up with a fantastic slogan or, you know, that someone took someone else out to the right game of golf. It was because the politicians recognised that the audience was demanding it. Mm. You know, so I think that the, you know, and, and, and I think that, you know, part of the weakness of the campaign for Australian music is that increasingly people like Australian music, but they don't think, you know, people don't get on Spotify and go, don't typically get on Spotify and go, hey, I really feel like listening to some Aussie music today, right? They just yeah. get on and go, I feel like this is some hip-hop or I feel like this is some, you know, yeah. some stuff to, to calm me down or something to, you know, I'm going to the gym. Um, so, you know, one of the hard parts is that it's difficult to get that mobilisation piece between your audience mm. and, and there's, you know, and the audience is being asked to do an awful lot of things and they've got very limited time, very limited resources. Mm. They've got their own problems with everything that's going on in the world right now. Mm. So... You know, I don't know that the campaign to, you know, dramatically increase um, plays in Australian music in a, on a unilateral basis is going to solve this problem right now. Don't think there's any harm in asking. Don't think there's any harm in using it as an opportunity to point out the flaws in the local content system. Mm. But I think that we're dealing with much, much bigger structural issues and perhaps, you know, a bit more conversation about those could be good too. Absolutely agree. Um, I feel like there are three buckets of artist managers and to an extent publicists and, and, and other support artist supports like uh, professionals you've got your top tier um who have a big war chest and are going to get through it and are going to be okay then you've got your middle tier who probably have about 12 months of runway there's a bit of savings they'll burn it in 12 months if no money comes in and they'll probably be okay then you've got your your, your, your first tier who have just finally been able to quit their job and they're literally living paycheck to paycheck and suddenly all their artist money is dried up. What are your advice to those managers and those publicists and those support staff? Try and find other revenue streams in a hurry. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a nice thing to say, but you may have to go back and get your day job. You may have to um, take on some extra work. You may have to use this as an opportunity to reskill in some way. Um, you know, I've got some friends who are in lockdown at the moment who are doing um, online training. Um, I thought it was a really useful um, way to spend their time um, you know I don't think here's what won't work sitting still and hoping it'll all be okay agreed um, so I think that or, or not even sitting still you know rocking in the fetal position and, and you know freaking out you can do that for, for an hour or two because it's plenty of people feeling like that right now mm. but once you've got through that you're actually going to need to find some other avenues you know I think that the I think you're being kind in your characterisation. I think that it's true that there is a layer of, of people across the business who've got the resources to ride this out um, and for whom it, it, it is not an existential threat. It's annoying, it's frustrating, it's disappointing, it's stressful, but it's not. 
mm. you know, life-threatening, business-threatening. I think the drop-off after that is actually pretty substantial mm. um, and that most other people don't really have many resources to be able to tide them over, even those who perhaps are doing quite well. Very few people says, have the planning to set aside or expect something like this to come along to put aside 12 months of resources. Mm. Um, they may have earned enough to notionally have done it, but people simply didn't, you know. Mm. And so I think that you find that you know, most people are going to very quickly find themselves challenged by this and trying to find those other revenue streams is going to be really important, you know. I think what's also going to be interesting out the other side of it is the extent to which old deals still apply. You know, there's been quite a bit of speculation on this stuff in the States over recent days, I don't know if you've read any of it, but about, you know, promoters attempting to sort of um, say, well, look, we've got six months of losses and we've kept our staff on for six months, whatever it's been. Mm. Um, you know, to recover that, we, we need to make more. You know, the venue's saying we've been shut for six months, we need to increase our rentals to, to get ourselves back to pay off the bank debt we've built up, mm. keeping ourselves afloat for those six months. There's going to be some very interesting negotiations because everybody's going to figure that, you know, well, when it comes back on, I'll be able to make some more back, but everyone can't make some more back because yeah. it's still only the same size cake. In fact, it might even be a smaller cake because if there is the kind of recession that is quite likely off the back of something like this, ticket prices will come down. Mm. You know, there'll be less touring. So I think that there's probably some some interesting structural realignments that will start to go on as well. Mm. Um, you know, and, and people, as happens every time that there's a, a crash in anything, this is a particularly unusual one, but mm. nonetheless, every time there's a crash, people have less appetite for risk on the other side of it. Mm. So, so you may find that some of the smaller operators who go back and get a day job or do some study or whatever it is that they they now, you know, um, broaden themselves to not have so many eggs in this basket, they may never go back to having this many eggs in this basket. They may always choose to say, you know what, I remember 2020, I'm going to continue to keep my side hustle mm. on the go, mm. you know, um, and, uh, and I think that's perhaps not a bad thing, mm. um, you know, that... The truth is that over, you know, I'm old enough now to have been around this business for a long time and there's always been good people who were only in the music business part-time. Mm. You know, it's something structural in the Australian music industry, just the size of the population, mm. that, you know, a lot of times there'd be people managing a band and also working, you know, doing some work at a promoter's office or managing a band while also working two days a week in a law firm mm. or managing a band and continuing to, you know, do some freelance writing on the side. Mm. Um, so perhaps that's a more sustainable model anyway, mm. rather than what you said, quitting your day job, throwing it all in, putting all your eggs in this one basket, and then all of a sudden discovering that, okay, next time it's not a virus, but it's the bushfires or it's, um, mm. you know, your artist fires you or whatever the case may be. So, um you know, it may be that part of the resilience that will inevitably emerge out the other side of something that's awful comes from people being, um, having a broader portfolio, if you like, mm. of, of, of sort of investment. Absolutely agree. Um, speaking, I mean, as an employer at the Bragg Media, we've got, you know, 15 to 20 staff. Um, and I think talking to other employers as well who employ a lot of Gen Zers and early millennials, it's really interesting because they literally have never experienced a shit music industry. It's always been awesome. It's always been profitable. It's always had a lot of revenue. Um, and 
the idea of, you know, me, I didn't earn a dollar in the music industry the first five years I worked in it. I was volunteering, I was still shit for free, I was still, I was just fucking hustling. And I, there's, you know, one of the best A&R managers in the, in the country at the moment, Mark Holland, was working at a major record company on shit money for so long, everyone's getting fired around him or quitting around him through the worst record times. He's stuck in, he's stuck in, and now he's, you know, one of the most senior people at AMI, absolutely crushing everything he hires. Uh, everything he signs and um, I just feel like you said bringing it back to the very start of you know the podcast and what you were talking about where you know it's going to weed out the people that aren't in it for the right reasons um, and I think this generation now it's the um, Gen Zers get a lot of unfair criticism I believe for being um, entitled and you know wanting high salaries without having any experience and whatever and it's like my view on it is no they can fucking demand it because it's there now it's not there, and now it's their chance to prove themselves. Um, and so, as an employer, um, and speaking to other employers, the position we're in as we speak in, might change in a few weeks. We've tightened up all budgets because we can't take risk anymore. But what that means is if somebody comes to us, particularly artist managers who are super skillful um, in many different ways, if somebody comes to us with some real value, and instead of saying, hey, pay me and I'll do this, just fucking do it and then bring it to us and then we'll pay you. I think that's going to that's going to really those people are gonna win. The people that fucking hustle and barge the way barge the way through the door. That's hundred percent right. And it's always been the case in the music industry. Um, you know, there will be less appetite for risk, which means that the people who are willing to take the risk will be the ones that get the reward. Um, you know, the thing is you take the risk hopefully by the investment of your time a little more than by the investment of your capital. Correct, yes. Um, so you know, and when you're in that under 25 kind of age group, you've got sort of less to lose in a way. Mm. You're vastly more in touch with the culture, um, just inherently. You're swimming mm. in the water and it makes it actually, it gives you a huge advantage, structural advantage, to help compensate for the structural disadvantages that come from not having access to capital, not having the relationships necessarily, mm. uh, it's lack of a little experience and so forth. But those other things can, can definitely, you know, outweigh that. Um, and I think sort of your point more broadly about entitlement and so forth, um, yeah, that, that, that's been the case from, there's Roman quotes about that, you know, like <laughs> yeah. every, every generation thinks that the, gen, you know, that what's, was it George Bernard Shaw, you know, youth is wasted on the young, like, yeah. that, you know, we, we've always, always thought that, you know, I was raised in a shoebox in the middle of the road and these kids have got it so good. Um, you know, I, I, I say that. You but, argue that it's always been true? The, the, the following generation has always had it better. You could largely argue that. You could largely argue that. Although, you know, um, it's not completely true all the way along. Certain generations in certain places have hit certain... Totally. You know, um, have hit certain bad, bumpy bits. And mm. I think this one might be actually one of the more challenged. You know, they're mm. the one that's going to inherit the planet we've left for them. Um, but so I think that your your point more broadly is true about sort of a sense of entitlement that's growth up. But, you know, I'm sort of enough of a history nerd to remember what happened in the 1970s when there'd been a period of you know, what was then a record run of economic growth. It's a small recession around 1960, but pretty much from 1948, 49, after World War II, all the way through to the oil crisis hit in the early 70s, there was this sustained economic growth. And a whole generation of what's now the baby boomers had grown up not knowing any different, mm. you know? And when that happened in the 70s, it was this huge existential crisis for people, you know, and the president talked about there being this, um, uh, it was a national malaise, but he used a different word, I think. 
Um, so we've been through these things before and come out the other side of them. And the other thing that's interesting about it, and I'm talking now perhaps more about economic hardship, the recession part of this, rather than the health hardship of this, mm. but the two are obviously probably going to be linked in this instance. Most of the great music has come out of the hard economic times. Yes. You know, punk came out of that, grunge in its way came out of that. Most of the, you know, the stuff that went on in Manchester came out of, you know, deprivation. Um, so, you know, hard times are often great um, catalysts for creativity and for, um, yeah, allowing innovation and for, yeah, people who are doing exciting stuff. So... I don't expect anybody to have that sort of, you know, to expect that to get anybody through today or tomorrow. But um, when all you're seeing on the news, understandably, is death and destruction and doom, um, trying to have some sort of perspective and recognise that the world has survived world wars. We've survived the threat of nuclear holocaust. We've survived even the dropping of atomic bombs. You know, we've survived Ebola. We've survived the plague. We've survived, you know numerous things, we may even survive Donald Trump. Um, so, you know, I, I think that human resilience is not to be underestimated. Um, the things that ultimately matter in life are the things that they can't take away from you anyway. Um, and that's a very glib thing to say when I've got a roof over my head. Um, but, you know, providing people look out for each other at this point in time and providing the leadership is there from government to provide the safety net that some people are inevitably going to need, um, then, you know, we'll get through this as we've got through all the other things. Mm. John, can you leave us with anything, um, I guess, any perspective from AAM for, for the managers in the country and for support acts for the wider music industry? Um, well, I, I, you know, I'm a patron for AAM, but I'm not on the board. Um, I know that Kath and, and the board have been very active in trying to provide support to managers at, at, at this time. Um, and as far as I am on the Board of Support Act, um, and I know that, frankly, Support Act is overwhelmed uh, by the, the rise in calls to the mental health, mental health helpline, um, and just been a magnificent addition to the industry. Thank goodness for the Albert family and the others who've helped um, make that possible. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like Support Act is going to need couple of zeros added to its resources to be able to provide just the crisis relief, just the band-aid stuff to help people as they get on to, to, um, on to Newstart. You know, I was talking to um, some of the, the people that represent road crew today, you know, who are making the point that, look, a lot of these guys haven't even filed tax returns for a few years. They're not even eligible for, for mm. the job-seeking allowance, you know, because um, of the sort of cowboy nature of, of, a lot, of a lot of how that side of the business works. Mm. So... People can say, oh, they'll just go and apply for new stuff. It's not really that simple for a lot of people. Um, so I think that, you know, Support Act has a really pivotal role to play in, you know, helping bridge some of these things. A lot of what Support Act does actually is not so much giving people money, it's helping guide them through government systems, the social workers that work there are really great at saying, did you know that there's this support? Did you know that there's that support? Because mm. people don't know, mm. you know, and, um, and a lot of people are too proud to ask. So, you know, one of the other things you can do to help your friends at a time like this is to say, if you're struggling in some way, don't be afraid to ask for help, whether it's, you know, help in the sense of, um, you know, some advice, mm. um, help in the sense of calling the mental health helpline, um, or help in the sense of, you know, asking industry peers to go, hey, can you advance me a bit against some work for, for coming down the track? 
Mm. You know, the people who get rewarded will, will be those who get off their bums and go out and try and do something about this one way or another. Um, it is not an option to, um, to give up. Mm. That is not an option. So um, I think that, you know, part of what Support Act and AAM are there for is to try to be a bridge to, between that sense of powerlessness, that sense of helplessness mm. that, that people often feel, you know, at a time like this, that we've all probably felt it, mm. um, and, and sort of a, a mode where you say, okay, well, I'm now engaged in doing A, B and C to help myself and to help the people around me get through this in the full knowledge that on the other side of it, there will be, as there always has been, plenty of people that want to experience music, want to experience live music, people, plenty of people that want to make great music and looking for help from talented people who will help them get that music to connect to an audience. Um, you know, in the meantime, there will be dark days. There have been dark days before. They don't last forever. They will end. Mm. Thank you, John. Really appreciate that. No worries. Cheers, mate. Welcome to Fear at the Top, powered by the Industry Observer, where we speak to leaders of the entertainment, tech and media industry to learn about their successes, mistakes and how they operate at the top of their class.